It's Monday morning, and I'm hoarse. Why do you ask? Why not? I was at the ballpark two of the three days this weekend as the Phillies won two of three against the Nationals. They're now three and three, and they're playing exciting baseball. We're going to talk about that. Is there a new closer for the Phillies already? And we have Dan Baker, the PA announcer of the Phillies, on the podcast this week. Episode three of the Phillies Nation podcast. Phillies Nation, welcome to episode three of the Phillies Nation podcast. I'm Tim Malcolm, the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Go to philliesnation.com for all of your news, rumors, opinion, information about the Philadelphia Phillies. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. You can find us on Twitter at philliesnation. And you can find us on Instagram at philliesnation underscore. Definitely updating all of those platforms over the week, the first week of Phillies baseball. We have tons of pictures on Instagram. We live tweet all the games, of course, and are always on Twitter, constantly updating that. And on Facebook, we have tons of stuff going on. So follow us on all those platforms. You can find the Phillies Nation podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and on our YouTube, youtube.com slash Nation. We try to update that as much as possible, so please uh, look for us there, and please subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other places. On iTunes right now, at this moment, you'll see a different image than the regular bell. You'll see uh, a, a former Phillies Nation podcast image. It's still the same podcast. It's it's my podcast, uh, so you can click on that. Subscribe. You'll get the podcast before anybody else, and please rate. Rate the podcast on iTunes. Give us great reviews because we would love... A, your feedback, and B, we'd love to get more people listening to this. Uh, it'd be a lot of fun. We want to get you guys involved in future episodes, so please subscribe and review to the podcast. So last week when I ended the podcast, or maybe it was in the beginning of the show, I forget when it was exactly, but I had said that I wanted the Phillies, I, I was hoping the Phillies would end the week and we could come into this podcast Either four and two or three and three. Four and two is kind of you know a little bit of a stretch because they were playing the Nationals over the weekend, and we all kind of knew with the Nationals' pitching staff that maybe two out of three would be tough. But three and three, four and two, that was definitely in our minds. We wanted maybe a 500 team coming into this week because I get sick of watching this team maybe win one game in the first six or seven. I like good baseball out of the shoot. So I feel a little energized, keep going, you know, as we get into sort of the regular flow of the season. And here we are, the Phillies almost, almost were two and four team after this week. Uh, but Jen Gomez did not blow the game entirely. He did give up a three run home run in the ninth inning to Ryan Zimmerman, which of course tied the game. But he didn't give up the lead, which was good because in the bottom of the ninth inning, the Phillies promptly won the game with a Cesar Hernandez single on Sunday. That was really fun to listen to. I was actually listening to that one, got uh, my uh, Fransky and L.A. fix, and it was really great listening to them. But um, they played really well Sunday, and sadly it finished with a 4-3 to win and not a 3 to nothing win. Pitching was really good up until the ninth. But, of course, the big story is Jenmar Gomez and his closer situation. We'll have Kirsten Swanson from philliesnation.com on the show a little bit later to talk about that, but I will say right off the bat that I think that Gomez will not be the closer very soon. In fact, this week as they start playing the Mets, uh, first game tonight, 
you probably will see a different closer getting ready for the Phillies at some point during that series, whether it's Hector Neris or somebody else. I hope it's Neris. He is the guy that is most likely to get that spot, and I think he's most deserved. But the bullpen itself looks really good right now. And we'll talk more about that with Kirsten Swanson in a bit. Our guest this week for the main interview is Dan Baker, the guy that you hear when you come into Citizens Bank Park every time you go to a game. He's the guy that does the introductions. He announces the national anthem. He introduces all the players. He's the one who calls out everybody's player's name when they come up to bat. You know his voice. You've heard it so many times. It's part of sort of the language of Philadelphia. We have him. We talked to him uh, the day of the home opener at the Penrose Diner. We had a really cool breakfast conversation with him. It was really fun to talk to him about, A, being the PA announcer for the Phillies, the memories that he has being PA announcer. He's in his 46th year as PA announcer. That's unbelievable. He's the longest tenured PA announcer currently in baseball. And right now, third longest tenured ever. Ever. Which is pretty amazing. Uh, He also talked about memories of 1964, which is maybe his favorite Phillies team of all time. He grew up with that team. He was uh, a teenager during those years. Really great conversation. Please listen to that later on. But the home opener after that was a letdown, obviously. The Phillies were down 7 to nothing early. But they came back, and they made it really close, and that sort of set up Saturday. But I will say this. We didn't really we talk about this with Kirsten a little bit later on, but I have to say Vince Velasquez, I worry about him more than any other pitcher in this rotation. Last year, he did not get deep into games. As I mentioned earlier on in an earlier podcast, he only got through the 7th maybe two or three times the entire year last year. It needs to happen more often. And this first start on Friday was not a good sign. He only won four innings. He struck out 10, whoop-de-doo, but he also pitched very deep into counts. He let guys stay into counts, and he gave up a couple big home runs. Can't happen. Cannot happen. So I worry about Vince Velasquez. But we'll talk about that with Kirsten Swanson later. Home opener was what it was. They came back, made it interesting. It was fun. I like Aaron Altair early on. Freddie Galvis, I mean, I wish that he wasn't so much of a power hitter and more of a ground ball hitter. But I think I'd, at this point, I'll take what I'll get with Freddie Galvis as long as he keeps flashing the glove, which he is doing. He looks amazing out there in the field. But Saturday was incredible. I was at that game, and I was actually, I wrote about it on philliesnation.com on Sunday. It was my five-month-old daughter's first baseball game. And I am, like, gushing. I was gushing excited about it. I couldn't wait to get her in the park. And basically the first inning was us kind of, you know, wrangling everything, getting her ready for sort of getting fed and then getting to sleep because the best really possible thing we could do is get her to sleep during most of the game. So it was really trying to get her in situations where she could go to sleep and not be bothered too much. Meanwhile, I had my niece and nephew with with us, and, and they were, you know, they're awesome kids, and they uh, went to get some food, and we were kind of just, you know, getting ourselves together as the first inning was happening. And I barely saw some run score during uh, my time at Ashburn Alley in that first inning as we were getting things together. And it was a scene. I'm standing there in the middle of Ashburn Alley with a carrier on, and I have a little thing of formula and a bottle, and I'm making a bottle for my baby. (laughs) These are things I never thought I would do at Citizens Bank Park in my entire life, but here we are. And meanwhile, the Phillies are putting together their greatest first inning of all time. (laughs) And uh, we finally got to the seat, and we still got to catch maybe about two or three runs at the end of the inning in the seats in the 400 level. It shows how long the inning took. 
And it was an unbelievable inning. It was unbelievable, and I'm hoarse because of it. The Phillies' offense looks really good right now at times. At times, they don't look so good. They did go scoreless in a game against the Reds earlier in the week. But I will say this, and I talk about this with Kirsten later on. It looks like they're going to be more consistent. It looks like they're not going to be as streaky as they were last year and in the year prior. Howie Kendrick, for one, looks really good out of the shoot. I mean, obviously, he's hitting 429 right now with a 478 on base percentage. It's not going to last, but he looks like he's a real nice stabilizing force at the top of that lineup. Oduble looks fantastic. 364 average, 481 OBP. He looks like he's locked in earlier on, and he's definitely taking more pitches, and he's getting the walks, and he's celebrating the walks. Five walks, four strikeouts. Really good stuff from Oduble right now. The rest of the lineup, up and down, depending on who you're talking about. Tommy Joseph, Cameron Rupper down. Michael Franco, what is he doing? He's still swinging really long right now and trying to get the ball out in the air. He needs to be more focused with line drives. He did that later in the game on Sunday. That's good to see. Michael Saunders, up and down. He's been mostly okay so far. Cesar has been looking fine at the top of the order. As long as the Phillies have three or four guys who are consistently contributing at a high level in this offense, Hopefully, that'll keep things going at a decent rate, and they're not going to slump too much. But I don't think we're going to get too many really poor offensive games this season. I think we'll get some definitely you know, one, two-run efforts, but I think for the most part, this team is going to have its moments where they're going to look a lot better than we thought they would have looked earlier in the season. Some of that's Matt Stairs, but some of that is definitely what Matt Klintak did in the offseason, picking up Kendrick, picking up Saunders. This team is a little bit more stable than it was in the past, and you see that already. Finally, uh, Sunday, uh, Jeremy Hellickson got hurt. He left the game after the fifth inning. He was pitching very well, got hurt, looks like a right arm cramp in his right forearm. He's going to be okay, reportedly. He said he was going to be fine. He's not supposed to miss his next start, which is scheduled to be Saturday afternoon in Washington. So that's good. Jeremy, though, looks very good out of the shoot right now. Very happy with what he's done. Uh, Right now, he's... Got a 0.90 ERA in just the 10 innings. He's had two five-inning starts. But he struck out three, walked two. Obviously, those numbers are low. But he's getting a lot of ground outs. He's getting a lot of fly outs, easy fly outs. Very tough at-bats that batters are having against him. He looks good. Aaron Nola looks pretty good. Jared Eikhoff looks great. He goes tonight against the Mets. 7.05 game time at Citizens Bank Park. Clay Buckholtz not so good. Vince Velasquez not so good. But first week... Early on, we have to see what happens. Obviously, some of the narratives are starting to take shape, and we'll see what happens this week, especially with the bullpen, Jenmar Gomez. Again, Kirsten Swanson is coming on in a moment to talk about all that. But 3-3, three and three, got to be happy with beating the Nationals 2 out of 3. We'll see what happens this week against the Mets. It'll be a fun series. 7.05 tonight, Jared Eikhoff on the bump for the Phillies. And the Mets, obviously, good pitchers coming at us this week as well. It'll be a fun series as the Phillies try to get over 500. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the Phillies offense getting going here at the second part of the week. The pitching has been up and down. Sort of indicative of what the season we thought would be for 2017. And I have Kirsten Swanson of Phillies Nation here with me on the phone. Kirsten, uh, so you were saying the same thing, that that this year so far, at least in the first week, looks a lot like what we thought the Phillies would look like here in the first part of the season. Yeah, for sure. I think it was about two weeks ago, Phillies Nation, we had, you know, what can go, what's the best that can happen for the Phillies and what's the worst? And I think we've seen a little bit of everything. (laughs) Um, Velasquez, 
didn't get out of the kind of make it to five had you know 10 strikeouts but couldn't really locate his pitches at all i call pitch really well but no run support ball colts didn't go past five but it's kind of what we expected um denmar gomez nearly blew the save on opening day blew the save on sunday um but that might be a good thing because we were kind of hoping that he wouldn't make it past the first week as the closer right. but then you know things went the phil's way the hitting has been pretty good other than the dud in game two um Herrera is off to a great start. Howie Kendrick's off to a great start on the top of the lineup. Um, Hallickson has show, shown on opening day and again on Sunday that he can give you the quality starts that you need. Um, so it's kind of a little bit of both. And then the Saturday, a little bit of luck was involved, and that's what we said <laughs> the Phils needed to get to 500. And here we are for the first week. They're at 500. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I'm looking at some of the players so far this year. You mentioned Velasquez right at the top, and I feel like he – more than anybody is sort of living in both the best and the worst of what he can do in one start. For sure. Like for, for he was four innings on, and I was there on Friday for that start. You were there as well. And yeah. he, ninety four pitches in four innings. He strikes out ten. So you're like, oh my god, this guy's a flamethrower. He can get anybody out. He had a you know double digit strikeout stuff. There it is. Yep. But then he walks for uh, three batters, and he's getting putting guys on base and giving up home runs, and and can't. I mean, like. Can we get like a down the middle performance from Velasquez, or are we going to see like this kind of like radical like, you know, every start is an adventure kind of thing from him? I'm worried about him. Are are you worried about him? I am, and I think I think we're going to have to accept that it's going to be a wild ride every time he gets on the mound. I really I'm struggling to see him going out there and pitching seven innings where it's you know six seven strikeouts and he's just you know keeping the ball down and getting ground outs. I just it's really hard to see that happening. Yeah. I hope he kind of, and I hear, you know, I listen to the radio a lot, and Larry Anderson's been saying, he just he's just so focused on getting these strikeouts, no. and he, he, he just needs to learn how to locate his pitches better and not worrying about blowing the ball past guys. He, he needs to make it further into games, and if he doesn't, it's going, to be, it's going to be a problem. Well, you know, luckily for Velasquez and the Philly starters who aren't going too far into games, the bullpen has been tremendous for sure. outside of really Jenmar Gomez and Adam Morgan, but, you know. What are you going to do? But uh, uh, right now, I mean, Joaquin Benoit, I think, looks terrific. He struck out, uh, I believe, three or four batters so far in his three innings of work. Uh, Hector mm-hmm. Neris has been tremendous, as, as we all knew he was going to be. Uh, Pat Neshek has kind of gotten out of some jams and has done a nice job. Are, are you confident in the group of guys that we have right now in the pen to kind of continue this throughout, you know, at least the first part of the year with Jenmar Gomez being up and down? I am. I really am. Unlike last year, where at this time last year we were, you know, what are we going to do? Um, I'm really confident in Naris, Benoit, and Neshek, especially even if, you know, even Naris or Benoit, if they get in the closer spot, I'm still really confident in the guys out there because they're not so much veterans, but they know their place. They know their stuff. Neshek is the veteran that, you know, can go out there even if there's a couple guys on base. I'm really confident in his stuff. Um but I'm really curious what Pete McCannon's going to do this week and if he's going to put in Naris in the closer spot, going to go with Benoit, or going to ride out Gomez one more time. Um, I'm yeah. curious to see what he's going to do. I, I, I kind of just hope it's Naris because he's the most likely candidate, but also you don't want to rock the boat too much. If you put Benoit mm-hmm. in the closer role, I feel like that sends a message to Naris, like what do I have to do to become a exactly. closer on this team, right? And at the same time, Benoit, you can count on him – in the seventh or eighth inning, and he really shouldn't be pitching in the sixth inning of a game, Pete McCannon. But Benoit can sure. be counted on to get <laughs> some big outs late in the game so that if Naris is struggling or something, you can just like slide him into that role for a game or two. 
you know, I, I, I think it makes a lot more sense if you have Naris back there, to be honest. I agree. Completely agree. Um, Especially confidence issues. Yeah. I, I, as far as the offense is concerned, and we saw this on Saturday with that unbelievable game, but Howie Kendrick has been really the best uh, potential uh, addition to this team at this point. He's hitting uh, right now. He's hitting uh, three six. Uh, no, excuse me, four twenty nine. He's hitting after his game on Sunday. Uh, he's got a bunch of extra base hits already, three of them, and and looks like he's just such a stabilizing force out there. Um, how confident are you in Howie Kendrick going the whole way here? Because he's, I mean, he's a thirty three three years old. He's not necessarily you know spring chicken here, but but right. do you think he can kind of? Do you think we can have a pretty decent player here at the top of the order for at least the first couple of months here? I do, and I think the first week is exactly what Harry Kendrick showed. It's exactly what Matt Klentek was hoping he was going to be. We heard all off season, you know, he's a professional hitter, and he is. We kind of were worried in spring training. He didn't have the best spring training, but we heard, you know, he's a veteran. Doesn't really matter what he does in spring training. He knows how to turn it on, turn it off. And I'm really confident in that. Even if, I mean, let's face it, this isn't going to last the whole season. Yeah. But if he gets in those slumps, you know, I'm not worried about him getting in a funk or for too long. I think he's been around the block a while, and he knows what he needs to work on, what he doesn't need to work on. And um, like I said, even if he gets in funks, he can work it out, and he's going to be that professional hitter that you need at the top of the lineup. Yeah, especially with, you know, Michael Franco sort of not necessarily getting himself going quite yet. Uh, and Michael Saunders has been pretty decent, but he's sort of been up and down, you know, at different parts. I mean, it's so early in the year, we don't want to right. say too much. Um, anybody on this team right now that, I mean, you mentioned that we kind of, you know, the best and the worst are kind of happening right now for this team, and we kind of knew going in what we, what it was going to be. Is there anybody on this team right now that you are kind of shocked about? Anybody who you're like, oh, wow, this guy is playing not as I expected so far? I wouldn't say shocked per se, but Cesar Hernandez and Freddie Galvez are really showing the Phillies that they deserve a spot on this team. I mean, and I really hope that it continues because I'm in the camp where I don't want J.P. Crawford to come up out of necessity. I want him to come up when he's ready, when he's had a lot of at-bats in AAA, and he's, you know, busting the cover off the ball, and you can't keep him down for any longer. And if Cesar Hernandez and Freddie Galvez can continue the way, both offensively and defensively, the way they're playing, I would be really, the Phils will be in good shape going forward. Again, I don't want J.P. Crawford coming up with fans, you know, calling for him. I want him to come up when he's ready, and Freddie Galvez and Cesar Hernandez are giving the Phils all the time they need. Yeah, I mean, I watching you know the games early on here. Cesar Hernandez, you know, he's only hitting two sixty nine, which is actually you know pretty average. It's what you want right. to see. I think he's getting on base at around a three hundred clip, three twenty or so, something like that. So it's early, but yeah, I think when you mentioned defense, he's he's playing much better defense than I would have kind of thought going in this year because I've always looked at him as sort of an above average defender, but just slightly. He seems right. to be even more on the ball this year. And Freddie, we all know, is Freddie. I mean, he's mm-hmm. making unbelievable plays. And I'm with you. You know, these guys can just be stabilizing out there. And while they're not world beaters with the bat, they're doing what they have to do. This team's in a much better position just with all the young kids who are about to come up. Exactly. Um, so uh, before I let you go here for this first segment, we'll come back later to talk about something very interesting. But... Um, Aaron Nola, who on Saturday pitched pretty well, he had a mammoth lead to work with, obviously. Gave up three runs, but again, blowout runs. He struck out seven, walked two. 
after the injury last July and obviously all of the worries that we had about him, how do you feel, sort of scale 1 to 10, with 10 being most confident, how do you feel about Aaron Nola going forward after his first performance this year? I would say about a 7. I You kind of saw in his shoulders after the blowout lead in the first inning, he kind of just relaxed and kind of exhaled, and I feel like I felt the same exact way. He couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't... The... the History that was made on Saturday couldn't have happened for a better pitcher at the perfect time. I think it's exactly what he needed. He was able to work on his stuff and not be too scared about locating every single pitch. And he was, I think he got his confidence back and he he assured his confidence in me as well because I, like I said, I'm in a seven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely in that first inning, I think I was sitting up top at the 400 level and even the guys around me were all like, you know. Yeah, they have like a 12 run lead right now, but it is the Phillies, you know. Right. What's gonna and, <laughs> but, but and even, I would be lying if I didn't have that same thought. But even then, it's like you know, yeah, we, I think we're we're going to be in pretty good shape. But but Nola pitched pretty well, you know, all told, and and mm-hmm. I think that is a huge confidence builder for him for sure. Uh, Kirsten, we'll come back later on in the show to talk about some interesting stuff that you had to talk about with one former Philly. We'll talk about that in a, bit, in a little bit. But, uh, Kirsten, thanks for coming on uh, the podcast. Talk to you in a little bit. Thanks, Tim. We're now here with Dan Baker, uh, the public address announcer of the Phillies at Citizens Bank Park. You can hear him there every time you go to the ballpark. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Tim. And uh, best of luck to you and Phillies Nation. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so, home opener. This is, what, you said your 46th home opener? Yes, this is my 46th. The first one, Tim, was 1972. That was my first year as the Phillies PA announcer. And uh, it was that was the year that Kite Man made his <laughs> debut. I think the first of three Kite Men that Bill Giles brought in. Of course, Bill, promotional genius. And... Uh, uh, kite man, uh, kite man, didn't make it very far that first year in '72, uh, but eventually he made it all the way to home plate, flying in uh, with his kite from the upper deck in center field. But but you were the thing that lasted from that opening day. You're, you you outlived Kite Man in so many ways. <laughs> well, uh, how privileged I am to do this. I mean, I growing up a Phillies fan. By the way. Steve Carlton came in 1972, and that was the year that Lefty went 27 and 10, and had a, uh, I, I think a 197 earned run average. Well, well, the team won what, like 56 games that year or something? I mean, were you dismayed at all as you were calling, uh, as you were in the in the, in the stadium those days? Uh, did you think, oh, why am I doing this? Or <laughs> well, not not at all. I just felt so privileged to do it. And don't forget, you know, growing up a Phillies fan, we, we went through a few lean years. So, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, all that unusual for the Phillies to have a losing season. Right, right. Um, so, just to set the scene here, we're at the Penrose Diner. It's the morning of the home opener here, Friday morning. They're playing the Nationals at 3 o'clock. It's a very, I mean, it's, it's been a busy diner this morning. There's been a lot of employee, uh, Phillies employees coming in here. Uh, some fans coming in here, so it's a busy scene. And Dan walks in, and he, he gets kind of people coming over to him and saying hi and that kind of thing. People know his face a little bit; they know your voice. So, what is it like, kind of, when you're around the town and you're doing events and you're, you know, you're, you're just doing your thing? When people come up to you and say, "I, you know, I, your voice has been with me for the past forty some years," what does that mean to you? Well, it's an honor. Uh, it, I cherish it. 
uh, growing up in Phil I love the city. I root for all of the Philadelphia teams, the Phillies, the Eagles, the Flyers, the Sixers. When I was growing up, our NBA team was the Philadelphia Warriors. And Tom, and, and they, they were the NBA champions in 56. I was born in 46. And I first started following Phillies. My, my, we lived in a row house in Southwest Philadelphia. In fact, we lived in an apartment in a row house. We were one of four families. And my parents uh, wanted, uh, you know, the best for my brother and sisters and me. So they moved to a nice home in New Jersey with the big backyard and the garage. And we lived on a cul-de-sac in Mount Ephraim, New Jersey. And that's where I started playing Little League Baseball and really became a Phillies fan. Uh, my first Phillies game, Tim, was in 1954. Uh, went with my father to a couple of games. My uncles took me. Uh, in September of 54 for my eighth birthday I saw the Phillies and the New York Giants with Willie Mays because that was a great year for the Giants that's when they won the World Series and beat the Indians in four straight uh, but I you know I remember Robin Roberts was my hero growing up you know other you know uh, I you know the the Dodgers had Duke Snyder and Jackie Robinson and Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella and the Cardinals had Stan Musial and the, the Cubs had Ernie Banks but we had Robin Roberts the top starting pitcher in the National League uh, as you know Robin won 20 or more games for six straight years from 1950 through 1955 of course the Wiz Kids won the pennant in 1950 and lost to the Yankees in four straight four close games uh, Robin lost the second game of that series two to one when Joe DiMaggio hit a home run in the top of the tenth to beat him the Yankee Clipper uh, but I'll, I'll never forget uh, going to uh, Connie Mack Stadium as a kid at 21st in Lehigh. And uh, when I was old enough that my parents would allow me uh, to go to the games on my own, I'd take the bus over. I'd catch the bus on the Black Horse Pike in Mount Ephraim, and it would let me off on Market Street in Philadelphia, around 12th and Market, 13th and Market. Uh, then I'd get the Broad Street subway and take that up to Lehigh Avenue, Broad and Lehigh, and walk the final seven blocks, Tim, from Broad Street to 21st Street. And if you went up in the evening, and as you approached the ballpark, and you could see off in the distance, the huge lights of the stadium. Oh, it, it, it looked like heaven to me. So, so what is it about baseball at such a young age that drew you in and that made you want to take that long trip to Connie Mack Stadium as a kid? You know, I, I don't really know what started it. Uh, I just know that I enjoyed it. Uh, listening to the games on the radio back in the 50s with Bysom and Gene Kelly at first and then uh, of course later in the 60s uh, you know Bill Campbell and Richie Ashburn joined the broadcast team um, but it was just magical and walking into that uh, ballpark at 21st and Lehigh it used to be Scheib Park and seeing that huge expanse of green grass you know it was so so bright green and all the sights and sounds and the aromas the cigar smoke and you know the hot dogs and the sausage sandwiches and the peanuts 
Sometimes I would walk the distance, which is quite a distance from City Hall up to uh, uh, Lehigh Avenue, uh, because at that time the subway cost a quarter, and I could save a quarter and buy a bag of peanuts on the way in. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, as the years progressed, I became such a Phillies fan as a kid. Of course, I knew every name, I knew every number, every position by heart. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, sixty in '64, I must have paid my way into uh, uh, half the home games. You know, prob probably, uh, you know, uh, I guess it was still a 154 game schedule in those days. So if they played 70, I, I I probably saw 30 games that year. Did you Did you know that team going in was going to be a special team? No, I, I hope for the best. Uh, you know, in '62 and '63, uh, you know they were getting better, and with pitchers like Art Mahaffey, who struck out 17 Cubs in 1961, and Don Demeter, who was later traded for Jim Bunning. Uh, you know, it there. Johnny Callison, who came over in 1960, you know, uh, Johnny was a really game winning home run in the All Star game that year in '64. Off of Dick Raditz, yeah, wearing a New York Mets batting helmet, <laughs> uh, but uh, number six right fielder Johnny Callison. That summer, going to games, uh, you know, the team was finally doing something really well for the first time in 14 years. Uh, how excited were you, and did you really think, yeah, this is the year they're going to get there in the World Series again? Well, the way that, again, before the season started, Tim, you know, I hoped for the best, but, you know, you don't know. Uh, Richie Allen, as he was then called, was just a rookie. He, of course, he was the rookie of the year in 64 and had a great, great year. Um, but you didn't know if it was all going to come together. And remember, we were coming off of the team that 1961 was like 47 and 107. I mean, it it was not a very good team. Uh, but you know, as a kid growing up in Philadelphia and being a huge Phillies fan, uh, it every every year, like in in the uh, early and mid 50s, the Brooklyn Dodgers were really good. And then later, the Milwaukee Braves with Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron were really good. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't wait for the time, like, when is it going to be our turn? When are the Phillies going to be really good? And that's the feeling, Tim, that you began to get in 64 when the Phillies played well early and they started to increase their lead. And, uh, you know, I, I loved watching Wes Covington, number 43. He could hit the ball a long way. He was on those uh, Braves uh, National League uh, pennant winners and World Series winner in like 57, uh, 58. Uh, I think the Braves won it in 57, may have lost to the Yankees in 58, something like that. Uh, but th this team was special. I mean, uh, Gene Mock, uh, who was not my favorite Phillies manager because I was a huge, Robin Roberts is my hero probably second only to my dad uh, was he my hero growing up. He was a great player, he was a great gentleman, who I later had the privilege to introduce here, you know, at Wall of Fame events and other ceremonies, throwing out the first ball. Uh, and I, after I got to meet him, Tim, it was such a, an honor, and he was just uh, the best possible role model, you know, always well-dressed, always well-spoken, unfailingly polite uh, 
but um, Gene Mock, uh, uh, near the end of uh, Robin's Phillies days, uh, he was no longer the great and dominant pitcher that he once was. And I think Mock made a comment one time that when they asked him if Robin was a Phillies institution or a Philadelphia institution or, or, or you know, a pitching icon, and he said something, well, he, he throws more like Betsy Ross or something, you know, it really, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, I didn't think that was a gracious thing to say. And maybe, you know, it's sometimes it's awkward when aging superstars are no longer at their best and, the, and it's now time for them to move on. But I think, like the way the Phillies handled it with Ryan Howard last year, very gracious yeah, to honor someone. Very dignified, especially at the end of the season when they gave him the final send-off. I mean, that was, that was very nice. Number six, first baseman Ryan Howard. See, I don't even have to ask you to do that. You go right ahead and doing it. <laughs> But back, back to uh, 64, uh, and of course we just lost uh, Dallas Green, and we just lost Ruben Amaro Sr., who was a gold glove shortstop for the Phillies in 64. The Phillies had two uh, great defensive shortstops in 64, Bobby Wine and Ruben Amaro Sr. And of course, there was Richie Allen over at third base, Tony Taylor and Cookie Rojas at second base, a multitude of first basemen. Yes, thank you. A multitude of first basemen, including John Hernstein, Hernstein, Danny Cater, Roy Seavers, Ruben Amaro Sr. When Bobby Wine was playing short, uh, Costin Shockley, later uh, later Frank Thomas, Vic Power. Uh, if Frank Thomas doesn't get hurt, doesn't break his thumb, siding back in the second, the Phillies win. Okay. Uh, you okay. know, Thomas had a. A great like August, I think seven home runs and 24 RBIs. Um, but uh, you know, Jim Bunning and Chris Short were terrific. Uh, Art Mahaffey. Did you think they were used too much at the end? In re in retrospect, yeah, I mean, yeah. at the time, I you know my sense was that Mock was doing everything he could to win. Uh, Ray Culp's arm w was hurt; they couldn't use him. Uh, and, you know, I think he lost faith in, faith in Art Mahaffey. I've talked with Jim Bunning about that later. And, uh, uh, but... Let me, let me ask you about that. Because, I mean, you mentioned Robin Roberts and how amazing it was to meet him and have that experience. Who had a good 64 with the Baltimore Orioles, by that's, the way. That's right. And then Jim Bunning, and you, and you were able to talk to him, you know, yes. in the future about those guys. I mean... How do you feel every time you get to either talk with one of those old heroes that you had or one of the players that you used to watch or, or introduce that person? I mean, what is that feeling like for you? Because I mean, you clearly have that great memory. I'm like a little kid again, yeah. you know, uh, and it brings back all those great memories. And to me, they're still heroes, even though they didn't win, you know. I mean, it was one of those things. Uh, they, they certainly, well, Jim Bunning's a Hall of Famer. You know, uh, I'm on a committee that's trying to help Dick Allen get into the Hall of Fame, and uh, I think he deserves to be. Uh, so, uh, I love talking with them. Uh, I'm doing a radio show with Greg Lazinski. I do a radio show every Monday with the Bull called The Bull Session on WBCB 1490 and WTEL 610 AM. We have Art Mahaffey on, on uh, Monday, April 17th at the Blue Bell Inn. 
so, you know, I revisit that. You know, uh, Art was a like a boyhood hero. I mean, I, I was 15 years old when he struck out the 17 Cubs at Connie Mack Stadium in 61. I saw that game on television. Um, but, man, he could throw hard. And, uh, of course, he, he made the all-star team a couple of times. And he gave you hope for the future, you know, Art Mahaffey and... And, and then that 64 team, and the Phillies were very competitive in the mid-60s, 64, 65, 66, 67. But obviously, it didn't go the way that we all planned and the way that you had hoped. No. Um, how, how, how distraught were you after that collapse in 64? I was sick, and I, I was a freshman at Glassboro State College, now Rowan University. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, Yankee fans and Met fans down there because uh, uh, Glassboro State drew a lot of kids from central and northern New Jersey as well. And, uh, you know, I thought, finally, we have it. And uh, with a six-and-a-half game lead and 12 to go, he thought, well, okay, you know, stumble here and there, but we're still going to win this thing. And, unfortunately, the Cardinals got hot, the Reds got hot. And we got cold, you know, <laughs> so, but, you know, I, even though I was disappointed, like most Philadelphians, uh, you know, I admired that team, uh, you know, they were heroes of mine, and I always uh, enjoyed talking with Ruben Amaro Sr. or Dallas Green or Bobby Wine, we have him on our show every year, uh, you know, I... I love seeing them again and talking baseball. Uh, let's f fast forward to, uh, obviously, you were here through the 70s and the 80s, and you, uh, you obviously got to witness uh, some great teams in the late 70s and 1980, of course, the World Championship team. Um, how, did you, how do you straddle? Do you straddle the line, or, or, or how do you straddle the line when a team like that wins a World Championship? It's the first World Championship in franchise history. You're obviously a fan. But you're obviously calling, you know, the, the the World Series game at Veteran Stadium, and you've always been very down the middle with calling up opposing hitters and things like that. Um, how are you able to sort of not be a fan of the moment while still being a fan of the moment? Well, Tim, uh, you're right. I'm a, I'm a fan first and foremost, but I also understand my responsibility in this role, and that is to provide information accurately concisely and understandably uh, if I start shouting or screaming or distorting my voice in a way that the fans can't understand I'm doing them a disservice and I'm not doing my job well so I will try to add some enthusiasm in the middle of a Phillies rally but never to the point where uh, you can't understand what I'm saying or I'm screaming or shouting and it's like, you know, so, uh, I, you know, I'm very cognizant of that, and uh, I, I try to keep that, you know, in the forefront and uh, make sure that I'm always doing my job. There's enough time to celebrate afterwards. Um, so, obviously, we mentioned you're at the home, we're, we're, it's home opener day here in Philadelphia, and uh, you mentioned Kite Man. Are there any other home openers that stick out in your mind that are, you know, relatively memorable? Uh, you know, and, and that this day is obviously your first big day of work for the year, at least as a PA announcer. So, is, is there anything that sticks out as far as memorable opening days? 
Well, uh, Bill Giles, uh, uh, every year, yeah, Bill is a master promoter. It was Bill that hired me in the fall of 71 to begin the, the base. The first year of the vet was 71, so I didn't announce. Uh, I was not the PA announcer in 1971. A, a gentleman named Art Wolf, who was a longtime uh, newsman on KYW News Radio, and Art had a wonderful voice. Uh, but uh, luckily enough, uh, I got the job beginning uh, in April of 72. Uh, Bill would have special ways to delivering the first ball. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't on opening day, but uh, I remember announcing Carl Walenda, who crossed the vet on a tightrope, uh, you know, and there was Benny Kosky, the human bomb, uh, who blew himself up inside of a coffin-like uh, wooden structure. Uh, there was the great Merrifield, who dangled from a helicopter and dropped the opening ball. And uh, I, another time there was a, a, an artist, I, I don't remember uh, his name or her name, I think there was two of them, that they came down a wire that was attached uh, to the roof of Veterans Stadium above the right field foul pole and they, and they slid all the way down. In fact, the Fanatic did that. Uh, so there was all kinds of neat ways, you know, to deliver that first ball, and uh, it was always a lot of fun. And of course, uh, another thing that makes opening day special, it, we usually have the All Philadelphia uh, Boys Choir and Men's Chorale singing patriotic songs and our national anthem, um, and uh, the introduction of the entire rosters of both teams, as well as the starting lineups, of course. Uh, and standing, you know, on the first baseline and the third baseline. Uh, it's just uh, very, very special uh, opening day. And uh, I hope to have a few more of them, Tim. <laughs> well, I, don't, I think if we have our uh, say, that will probably happen. Um, I wanted to ask, are there names of players that people, when they come up to you and say, you know, Dan Baker, can you say this person's name? Or what name do you get often from people on the street or, or in events or things like that? Well, a lot of times people like me to say their name. Oh, yeah, okay. They'll tell, or could I do, could I, uh, do the uh, message, you know, the greeting on their, uh, on their voicemail? Um, but uh, uh, sometimes they'll tell me that they have a favorite, uh, and I'll do it. Like a lot of uh, people's favorite in recent years, number 26, second baseman, Chase Utley. Uh, so I, I'm happy to oblige if somebody wants me to say a name. You know, uh, and when people ask me, do I have favorites? I try not to choose favorites. I try to say all of the names with equal enthusiasm. Uh, but some names lend themselves to a more melodic interpretation, usually the polysyllabic words. Now batting for the Phillies, number 12, second baseman Mickey Morandini. See, he can do a lot with that. Yeah. Um, my, 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 I think my favorite, and by the way, you give me tingles when you do that because it just it makes me think of being a kid at the vet again, you know? But my favorite, I think, is Bobby Abreu, the way that you do it, because it's a very sort of round finish to that name. Somebody just asked me the other day, uh, somebody interviewed me uh, 
via email, and uh, they hi, uh, they asked me to name three, and I named Morandini, Luzinski, and Abreu. Number forty-three, right fielder Bobby Abreu. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're when you're there today, and when you're there throughout the season here. Um, are there any portions of your job during the day that you love more than any other? Is, is there something that you get a kick out of every time you do it? Because, I mean, how many games have you caught at this point? You, I don't know if you've kept count, but you probably thousands upon thousands of games at this point. It's but, some, somewhere over 3,600, counting, you know, postseason. And, uh, but as... I, I just enjoy the whole experience. You know, I keep score during the game and to help me keep my place and everything. And uh, again, you know, being such a, I mean, I still can't, I have to pinch myself sometimes. I, I told you, I used to go to a lot of Phillies games on my own. Here I am going to every game, getting paid for it. I love to do it. Uh, I, I love the enthusiasm of the crowds and the support of the hometown Philadelphia fans. And to the extent that I might encourage them from time to time, you know, I get a kick out of doing that, thinking that maybe in some small way, you know, I'm helping the team just a little bit by helping to promote, a, you know, a positive uh, environment in the home ballpark. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoy, I think I'm the only PA announcer in all of Major League Baseball that introduces the lineups from the field. And that's something that Bill Giles started many years ago, and Dave Montgomery continued. And I think that uh, Dave and Bill thought that by having a person that you can see on the field uh, introduce the starting lineups and the other pregame presentations and ceremonial first balls and introducing the national anthem and the anthemist, uh, either singular or plural, uh, that it helped uh, convey a certain warmth or welcoming as opposed to a disembodied voice that you heard coming out of the speakers somewhere. You didn't know where this person was, what he or she looked like, uh, but you heard that voice almost you know, like the voice of God, you know, and this way it kind of humanizes, I think, the person and lends to a warmer environment. Well, you've, you've called a lot of Philadelphia institutions. I think you are a Philadelphia institution. Uh, I'm going to conserve your voice for the rest of the day so that you can get to work at 3 o'clock today against the home opener today. Um, Dan Baker, thank you for coming on. And uh, anything, any parting shots real quick before we let you go? I like the direction this Phillies organization is taking, Tim. There's a lot of good young prospects uh, uh, all over the Phillies farm system uh, from you know uh, AAA Lehigh Valley, AA Reading, uh, low A Lakewood, high A Clearwater. Uh, you know there, there's a lot of talent in this organization and I definitely think better days are ahead and you know I salute uh, John Middleton uh, you know, who uh, one of our owners and uh, Andy McPhail and Matt Clintack, I think they're going about it the right way. And I think within a couple of years, you're going to see a very strong contender once again 
for the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, I think so too, and hopefully you'll get to call those teams as well. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. So right now on philliesnation.com, Kirsten Swanson, who I have back on the show, she was here earlier, wrote about Brett Myers. She had an interview with him a few weeks back, and the former Phillies starter and reliever, of course, he threw the final strike in the 2007 season in which the Phillies took out the New York Mets for the division title. She talked to him about a lot of things. Uh, first and foremost, his music, because I think he really wants to talk about his music, but also about uh, some very interesting things, uh, opinions he had on the game right now, uh, things he had to say about 2008 and Brad Lidge and Cole Hamels and so many things. So, Kirsten, let's just get to it, because he talked about bat flips and guys who kind of go too far with or what he what he believes is going too far with their celebrations after certain hits and such. And obviously talking about Jose Bautista, uh, right. his quote was, quote, it's frustrating for me to watch. I'm glad I'm not playing anymore because if Jose Bautista did that to me, as in a bad flip after a home run, he probably wouldn't have made it to first base. Don't right. disrespect me on the field and I won't disrespect you. From your point of view talking to him, you know, what, what do you, you kind of get out of him when he, when he talks about that kind of stuff? So I can see coming from him, and I can see with maybe most pitchers nowadays, you know, it's a, it is a respect thing when you're a pitcher. I'm, a bit, I'm not a huge fan of that flips, but Odubel Herrera is my favorite player, and I get, you know, I get really excited when he throws his bat after a walk. It's almost but comical it's, at this point, though. Like he right, right. Play, like it's like, oh, he's, he's funny. He almost, like, you know, like, knocked out Franco the other day. Yeah. Um, but I can see as a pitcher, you know, especially, you know, if it's bottom of the ninth and you let up a walk-off homer, you're going to get annoyed. And I can see that, especially coming from Brett Myers. But to say that it's disrespectful, like you said, it's what they know. It's how they play the game. That's it's, true, yes. Um, it's, and it's fun. As a young fan, you know, it's fun. You don't want to, you want to see that. You want to see your players having fun the game that you play, and you want to have fun. So I can see where he's coming from, so I'm trying not to, you no, know. I- I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, to, but, but I, you know, I get it, too. Like, these guys, you know, they grow up in whatever situation they're growing up in, and they're taught something, you know, that's different from what maybe a guy in Dominican Republic is being taught right. about baseball or what he's experiencing about baseball. So, surely, you know, when that clash happens, whatever level it's at, whether it's in the minors or in the majors or something, there could be that, you know, well, this is what I believe. Why is that guy doing something that is against what I believe when I've been taught right. forever? So, it's definitely a fine line that you have to walk, but... I mean, I just wish that, like, I wish there was more nuance with that yes, kind of stuff. You know, like, for that's, sure. that's it. That's it. Uh, for but, sure. But he, he talked a lot about Cole Hamels, uh, mentoring Cole Hamels, and he talked, I, how did it come up when he was talking about the 2009 World Series and Cole Hamels, we, we all remember that Hamels, after his Game 3 performance, which wasn't that great, mentioned that he said that, you know, he, he couldn't wait for the season to be over, like, whatever it was. He obviously was tired, and he didn't, he was, you know, he didn't prepare as much as I think he wanted to in 2009, and he was kind of talking about how he wishes that he did better and all that stuff. But what, how did that come up? How did Brett Myers start talking about Cole Hamels in 09? I am not even really sure. The whole conversation kind of bounced around, and somehow Cole Hamill's name got thrown in there, and then that kind of came out of nowhere, and he just starts saying how... I, it was kind of twofold. One, he was talking about Cole Hamill's and how he had a really good relationship with him, and then on the other hand, throughout our conversations, he kept saying how he was getting a bad rap in the media, and because of his off-the-field issues, and you know, some media members well, knew his him. Well, o- his off-the-field issues are very serious. Right, I mean, exactly. That's, that's not anything to just 
like throw in there with the Cole Hamels thing. Exactly. He was, he was accused of beating his wife on a street in Boston. So for you sure, know, that's and that's, then the whole he mentioned Sam Carcitti thing. Um, yeah. So that was kind of the tone throughout the conversation. So that was where the Hamels stuff came in, where on his end he's really close friends with Hamels, and that kind of got blown out of proportion, and got blown out of proportion because of his persona or however you want to say it in the media when the media asked brett about what cole said he kind of made a joke and said oh he quit and then he went home with hamels that night and they rode back into the ballpark together the next day and brett myers was kind of joking with cole saying i bet this is going to get blown out of proportion because it's me everything with me gets blown out of proportion and hamels you know joked and said no way no way and on their way in they got a call from the Phillies media guy saying you know this is what's up um, it's kind of a big story now, and they kind of just laughed about it. But I, well, it's just why is he bring it up now? It's 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 eight years later. Nobody's talking about that story in 2009 anymore. Right. Cole Hamels is doing well in Texas. Uh, you know, there's nothing to talk about with it. It's just it. I, I, does he think that we still kind of stew about stories that were printed eight years ago about this team? I'm not really sure where. Like I said, I don't know where it came from. It was yeah. kind of just a mix of both. Cole Hamas was somehow brought up in the conversation about something else, and then he kept going on about the media, and then there was kind of the story just kind of blended together, and that's how it came out. Gotcha. The other one was Brad Lidge, which I thought was kind of funny too, because he talked about how, and this is this is interesting, and I, don't, I actually don't remember this that well. Maybe maybe this wasn't reported, maybe this was reported, but Brett Myers uh, said about Brad Lidge that he was sort of frustrated that uh, he he wanted to be the closer in 2008 when the Phillies traded for Brad Lidge, um, and he was not prepared properly to be a starter that year. And of course, he had a tough start to 2000. And eight, he got hurt. He came back. He was in the minors for a little bit to rehab, and then he was amazing at the end of uh, yes. eight. Um, how did that come up? The whole Brad Lidge thing. I kind of asked him because you know, 2007 it was my favorite year, so I brought that up and said, you know, you had a pivotal role in 2007 as a closer, so you can kind of talk about how that came to be. So we mentioned, you know, in the off season between 06 and 07, Pat Gillick visited him at his home and saying, you know, we kind of were stacked in the starting role this year, would you mind moving to the bullpen? And he kind of said, you know, I'll do anything the team wants. Just let me know. So he wound up, you know, setting up for Tom Gordon in the beginning of the year. Then Flash went down and got to close the role, got hurt, then wound up, you know, shining, closed the last game to clinch the division. So, you know, he said he felt like he was made for the closer role, especially after 2007. He really felt like that was his. Then he found out they traded for Brad Lidge in the offseason, and then he kind of never got he didn't get over it. He went into spring training. He wasn't prepared to be starting pitcher again. He kind of not even wasn't prepared, but didn't care to prepare. Kind of, he, he called himself out on it. You know, he said it was selfish. Okay. He really didn't take him until June when he got sent down to the minors to really, you know, get his mind right and sure. realize that he will do anything to make the team win. Um, and that's when his success came. Well, I mean, it's interesting. And I, and I think, you know, good for him to own up to sort of, saying he wasn't prepared enough for 2008 and that he definitely was part of that. You know, he struggled a bit in 2008 and I was part of the problem for the team early on. But, um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, Myers, I think we all kind of, I mean, I, I for myself at least, I should say, I look at him sort of in a, you know, number of prisms. He, he has his personal situation that we obviously were not fans of. Um, and he definitely is a little bit outspoken, which is fine. It's what he wants to do, but it's very interesting when he starts to talk about things, you know, years away or things right. that he hasn't really been. A, what does he have to say about bad flips now? He's out of the game. He's doing music now, but he's 
he wants to make sure people listen to his music. So that's why right. he's doing this stuff. Right. But at the end of the day, this is a guy who gave us some great memories in 2007. In 2008, too, he pitched extremely well down the stretch for the Phillies, really helped stabilize the rotation late. And he's always going to be someone that I, you know, think of with a little bit of a, you know, gleam in my eye. Like, yeah, he definitely right. was part of something great here. I, I just find it interesting that he's, you know, well, I, I don't find it interesting. He's trying to sell music, I guess. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And also, he mentioned several times that he mentioned a lot that he was, you know, that kind of leader in the clubhouse in 07 and 08 and how he was always the player like that. And now yeah. he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he would like to coach or manage or something. He still wants to be in the game in some way. So I think that is also part of it as well. Yeah. And no, I, I think anybody who, you know, has a little bit of a, you know, inkling to get back in the game will mention yeah. it, you know, in the media just to try to, you know, get that seed on, in the ground. For but, sure. Um, but, <laughs> But at the end of the day, I think it's it's just interesting to hear from him and, and you know know that he's kind of still plugging away and trying to do what he's trying to do. But uh, good good stuff. I I I think it's a good piece and and we have it up now at the, at the website. It's Monday, so it was up last night. All right, Kirsten Swanson, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll get a couple more wins this week. Sounds good, Tim. Thanks. And that concludes the horse version of the Phillies Nation podcast. <laughs> Sorry for the voice troubles this week, but uh, hopefully next week I'll be a little bit clearer. I'm, I have no Phillies game scheduled for this week. Want to thank Kirsten Swanson for coming on the podcast to talk about the week that was. Also want to thank Dan Baker for the great conversation over breakfast at the Penrose Diner. Want to thank bensound.com for the music for this week's podcast. Again, you can find the Phillies Nation podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Spreaker, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube at youtube.com slash philliesnation. Go to philliesnation.com for news, rumors, opinion, information, facebook.com slash philliesnation, Twitter at philliesnation, and Instagram at philliesnation underscore for photos and much, much more. By the way, Reese Hoskins hit a home run on Sunday. He's now hitting 357 in this in this early spring going here in uh, AAA. Jorge Alfaro hitting 545. Dylan Cozens homered. Cornelius Randolph has three home runs. He's hitting 176 though. And Mickey Moniak is at 412 with three doubles, three steals, and six runs batted in. Hey, let's get going, prospects. For the Philadelphia Podcast, I'm Tim Malcolm. I'll see you next week.